Amen. Well, if you would, we're going to uh, read about how God did save our souls from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. So remain standing in honor of the reading of God's perfect word and take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 to 10 this morning. Ephesians 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And you may be seated. This morning as we pray for our service, we want to remember Rick and Dana Franklin who are serving with Arrow Leadership Ministries. They're based in British Columbia, Canada, and they are focused on church leadership training and development all over the world. And so we want to remember them and pray for them this morning. And Lord, we come to you this morning recognizing that before time began, you determined a perfect plan and purpose to exalt the Son of God and to bring lost sinners to worship and praise Jesus. God, you existed outside of time and outside of space and beyond all matter, and yet you spoke all of it into existence. God, you created time and you brought forth space and brought forth matter and created all things. 
God, you are infinite and beyond our comprehension and our understanding, and yet you have revealed yourself to us through your word, and you allow us to come to you boldly and to, to know you, but not because of our own merits, God, because we are rebels who have run from you. We have claimed the throne that belongs rightfully only to you, and God, as such, we have been deemed treasonous, and rightly so, and so God, we have no hope to come before you except because of the blood of Jesus who in great love died to pay the penalty for our sins. And so we can come and know the infinite God. And so, God, as we come to you, we can know your grace and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness. And we praise you and we thank you for that. God, would you lift our eyes to see Jesus and the greatness of our Savior and that we would praise and worship him with full hearts, and that we would live our lives committed to honoring him and making much of him. God, thank you for Rick and Dana and their desire to do exactly that as they train leaders all over the world to make Jesus known and to proclaim your word. And God, that that word as it is planted in us and, and as your Holy Spirit works, changes lives and brings people into right relationship with you, standing before you righteous, not because of our works, but because of what Jesus did at the cross. And so we pray that you would give Rick and Dana encouragement and strengthen them, give them joy in seeing fruit of their labor as they labor for you. And we commit this time to you and this service to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
this morning. Help us to take joy in that truth this morning. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll please find Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles. The beautiful song we just heard, a confidence-building song anchored in Christ. You know, every Christian knows that uh, they aren't supposed to fear 
but still we too often live with fear. Maybe we fear financial hardship, poverty, job loss, not enough money. Maybe we fear pain, suffering, loss of comfort, or illness, sickness, poor health, cancer. Maybe you fear death, yours or a loved one's. Maybe you fear the future, what will be or what will not be. And maybe you fear judgment of others or of God. Sometimes I think the thing we fear most is the past. Our sins catching up with us. Our shame being exposed. We fear not being forgiven. And it could be because we've misunderstood forgiveness. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. And then think of the excuses you made. C.S. Lewis said, if you had a perfect excuse, you would not need forgiveness. What we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists of asking God to accept our excuses. In Christ, the Christian freely admits their sin and experiences freedom. When you, in Christ, freely admit your sin, you experience freedom and the confidence of forgiveness. Every Christian needs what Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 tells us, to know with confidence that they are redeemed and forgiven in Christ. Paul is writing a letter to Christians who were living in a hyper-ungodly culture that needed to know their identity in Christ. These Christians needed to be built up with confidence in Christ, just like we do. They needed assurance because sin is deceptive. They were tempted to go back in their old ways, just like we are. And so what Paul is doing right from the beginning is recounting their blessings laying it all out, and and there are blessings too in Christ, and he's just piling them high and deep, these bountiful blessings, like this superabundant feast. He's telling them, this is what your heavenly Father has planned. He chose you in Christ from all eternity, out of all humanity, before the creation of the world, to be holy before him. And and you were chosen because he had predestined to adopt you as sons and daughters into his family according to his good pleasure, his great joy. He was very glad to do so. You were chosen, elect, predestined to adoption as sons and daughters. And, And he's telling them this was accomplished by Jesus. And now he is telling them of Jesus carrying out that plan. How in Christ, God frees and forgives his people by grace. That you can be confident. This is what you need to know today with confidence. That Jesus frees and forgives his people by grace. That's what you can know with confidence. It's what you need to know with confidence. That in Christ, the beloved is redemption and forgiveness and abundant grace. It's what we see in these verses today. We're going to look at the the end of verse 6 and then into verse 7 and then into the first half of verse 8. We're going to see first the beloved in verse 6. 
And, and secondly, the redemption in verse 7. And third, the forgiveness in verse 7. And fourth, the grace in verse 8. The beloved, the redemption, the forgiveness, the grace. Paul is laser-focused on the blessings that Christians have in Christ. We need to know these things. We need to relish them. They wouldn't have passed them by really quickly and said, we heard it once. They would have thought about it. They would have relished it. They would have rejoiced in it. And he's focused on the blessings of grace found only in Christ. And he describes Jesus with this endearing title of affection, the beloved. You see it at the end of verse 6. He is speaking of the purpose of God's will in Christ, and it is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in, you'll notice in your Bibles, capital B, Beloved. He calls Jesus the Beloved. That in glorious grace in the Beloved, and that, that, that stands for a close personal relationship given by God, God loves the believer. He loves you because he loves Christ. Glorious grace in the beloved, a close personal relationship given by God, and calling Jesus beloved is very significant. Paul does not usually use his title for Christ. Beloved refers to the sonship of the incarnate beloved son, God the Son, whose great love led him to sacrifice his life, give his blood. Jesus said in John 10, I lay down my life for my sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He is the beloved. Referring to Jesus as the beloved is consistent with the rest of, the, of Scripture. It's applied to Israel in the Old Testament, the beloved one of God, numerous times. In Colossians 1.13, Jesus is called the Son of God's love. In the Gospels, God calls Jesus my beloved Son. At his baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And at his transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Beloved refers to Jesus as God. It's a messianic title. It, re it reflects the idea of being chosen and loved. In Matthew 12, if you go over to Matthew 12, what you'll notice, and it's a direct quote of Isaiah 42, in Matthew 12, verses 18 to 21, directly quoting Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is speaking of Jesus. In fact, in, in that one verse, verse 18, Matthew 12, 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. You've got election, you've got good pleasure, and beloved all together. And calling Jesus beloved, he's saying he is the embodiment of, in himself of the beloved and elect people of God. If you're a Christian today, you are beloved of God because you are in Christ. 
The God's people are his beloved. It's often when we are called beloved in the New Testament, believers are called beloved, it's often in context with being elect, being chosen by God. That God the Father calling God the Son beloved is evidence of love within the Trinity, and believers in Jesus are also the object of God's love. You might not feel very lovely today, but if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've placed your faith in Christ alone and you know he died for your sins and he was buried and he rose on the third day, he he died in your place, shedding his blood for your sins and he took the punishment you deserved and you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you are loved by God. You might not feel very loved today. You might not feel very accepted today. But you need to know with confidence that you are the object of God's love. You, pointing at you, Christians. You're the object of God's love because you are in Christ the beloved. And it's all because of God's changing, unchanging plan. The plan never changes. He made a choice and it's invite only on the invite If you're God's child, you're here on purpose. He didn't mistake you for someone else. When my friend Chopa Mwanza in Kitwe, Zambia, asked me to go out to Zambia and teach a pastor's block class out there, he, in the invite, he, he told me all the other people that had gone there, and they were quite notable pastors, and I'm thinking, I think he got me mixed up with another classmate. I actually don't know if he's actually inviting me. See, if you're God's child, you are here on purpose. God didn't mistake you for someone else. He wasn't thinking of someone more notable. He was looking for you because he had chosen you. And you then would have comfort and confidence and actually be humbled by his choice like Paul was. Praise the premeditated plan of God. That's what we do. Christians praise the premeditated plan of God. God has blessed us in Christ, the beloved. I'm caught up in the love that the Father has for the Son. Well, I want to bless God with every ounce of my being because he has given me every spiritual blessing. This is the response of the believer. This is is what the psalmist said in Psalm 63.3. Because your loving kindness is greater than life, my lips will praise you. It just drives you on to praise God and, and, and just having hope, assuring confidence that your, your, your soul is anchored in Christ, that it drives your, your life of worship. You can wake up in the morning and say, I want to serve Jesus. I want to trust him. I'm going to obey him. I don't want to live by fear. And it's because, Christian, you're in the beloved. You've been blessed in the beloved with the grace of God poured out on you. And next we see that in the beloved we have Verse 7, redemption. Redemption is something that Christians need to understand. In him, we have redemption. In him. In union with Christ. And and you'll notice that grace are like bookends here. You got verse 6, grace. And then in in the middle, in the part of verse 8, lavish grace. You've got the, the grace that we've been blessed with in the beloved, and we've got this lavish grace poured out on us. The, the these grace bookends. But in him, we have redemption in union with Christ. And what you'll notice, what you need to notice is there is a dramatic shift in tense here. He goes from from describing God's past actions to bless us to the present tense. It's we have redemption. We have it right now. 
present blessing every believer enjoys through a living relationship in Christ, and you have it right now. How often do we think, well, someday I'll, I'll feel better as a Christian. Someday I'll feel more assured. Someday I'll be confident in Christ. Someday I will uh, you know, have a better grasp on who I am in Christ and, and my position in Christ. And what God is telling every believer today through these verses is, oh, no, you have it right now. You have this right now. It's not something you need to work up to. God has given you this. You have it. You have redemption in Christ. And, and it's an ongoing, it's a present blessing that believers enjoy through living relationship to Christ right now. In him we have. That's an ongoing state of redemption. It's in the present tense. Redemption is a present possession of every believer. Redemption is important. Redemption is bedrock biblical truth. Redemption is found 10 times in the New Testament, seven times by Paul, three times here in Ephesians. It refers to Christ's death. It refers to the price he paid to free us. The idea of redemption is, is more about setting free than about a payment. We often think of it as a payment. There is a payment of price so the person can go free. The big idea of redemption is going free. It's the payment of a price necessary to secure freedom. Jesus sets you free by his shed blood. The emphasis is on being set free. The idea of being released from prison through his blood. It's the cost of ransom. And the redemption is only in Christ. All things were created in him and through him and for him. And he redeems us from the slave market of sin. We don't use the term redemption very often in our common everyday language. But in those days, slavery was very common in the Roman world, and including Ephesus. And the concept of payment to secure freedom for a slave would have been very well known. They would have got it right away. Often it was redemption of kidnapped people or slaves into the status of free through the payment of a ransom. And it was always assumed that one's family would pay the ransom, that your family would pay the ransom for you. And that's why it's so important that we have already heard that God chose us and predestined us. This is God the Father predestined to adopt us and did it. Our family paid the ransom. The preeminent case of redemption in the Bible would have been God freeing his people from, the, from, from Egypt in the Exodus. When God raised up a redeemer in Moses, he told them to say to the, the Israelites in Exodus 6 verse 6, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens or, or the yoke of the Egyptians and I will free you, literally I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great, literally mighty acts of judgment. It was a defining moment for Israel. They would be called to remember their freedom from slavery on an ongoing basis, to never forget it. If you've been saved by Jesus, if he set you free, if he's redeemed you, you don't get over that. You don't get over that. I remember when I was first a brand new believer, I was telling someone, I can't believe that Jesus saved me, and I'm, I'm going to read the Bible 
all the time, and they're like, you'll get over it. You don't get over being redeemed by Jesus. You love it. You relish it. You have confidence in it. Your life is, is, is framed by it. Your identity is shaped by it. The Lord acts as the great kinsman redeemer to redeem his people. Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And, but in the gospel, God's new covenant people are, are drawn not just from Israel, but from all the families of the earth. And former slaves to sin are adopted into God's family and they receive redemption. New creatures in Christ have experienced redemption, a second exodus. Christ purchased us from the curse of the law. The price was his blood shed on the cross in our place as a means of securing the redemption. This is what Titus 2.14 tells us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He took our place in receiving the condemnation and the punishment our sins deserved. Because of our sins, those sins we excuse and we say, well, I, I made a mistake. It was all via Christ's sacrificial death that we can be delivered, that Christ's blood is the ransom price for our sins, that as we sing, he paid the blood price for me. In Acts 20, 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's how precious the church is to Christ. In Galatians 3, 13, we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, to believers, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body right now in your life. Glorify God because of the, of the precious blood that was spilled to buy your freedom. In Hebrews 9.12, it says that Jesus did it by the means of his own blood and secured eternal redemption. In Revelation 1.5, it says that Jesus loved us and set us free from our sins by his blood blood. We need to understand redemption. The pinnacle of an explanation of redemption is found in, in Romans chapter 3. Now look with me in Romans chapter 3 in verses 21 to 25, where it is clearly told to us this righteousness of God through faith in Christ comes because we've been purchased by his blood. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, pointed to the cross and said, the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Redemption, the idea of substitution in our place is connected to the price of redemption that he gave himself as a ransom, that by his death, Christ rescues his people from the slave market of sin as he rescued his people from the Egyptians and from the Babylonians and from the nations. And God did this by freeing people from captivity at the cost of Christ's blood. Blood was the price that Christ paid. The original hearers would have readily understood redemption They would have known that it was a reference to the price paid to free a captive or slave, and they would have understood blood as the purchase price. What the Christian today needs to understand is that Christ's blood, Christ's death, sets you free from slavery to sin. That in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can say no to sin. You can say yes to obedience to Jesus and no to sin. And don't get, any, don't get it wrong. That doesn't mean you'll never sin again in your whole life. Don't be delusional. But what it means is that in the power of the Spirit of God, the person reborn by the Spirit of God can actually do what pleases God in Christ's strength and for his glory. It's not because you wake up one day with an idea that you want to do that. It's because God enables that redemption He frees you from bondage and imprisonment to sin like Israel's release from Egypt. And what happened? What happened when they were, were released from Egypt, when they were freed? What did they do? They sang the song of salvation. They praised God. We should too. We should praise him with thanksgiving. Wow, redemption has taken place. We have it now. We have, as Ephesians 2.1 says, we have life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among we whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. But God, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Believers have been redeemed from darkness and alienation from God, and, and redemption exempts you from condemnation. Redemption exempts you from the future day of judgment. Redemption exempts you from being under the wrath of God and having your sins punished in you because they were punished on Christ at the cross. That's the truth for a Christian. That's why you have confidence in Christ. That's why you can live without all the, the, the messed up ideas that you had before you were a Christian that you can actually think clearly and say, wow, just like Colossians 1, he has rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his son that he loves, the son of his love, the beloved, in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of my sins. And this gets really specific, does it not? Our sins They're so 
plenteous, sins that weigh so heavy, his mercy is more. In the beloved, we have redemption. And now what we see, the third point, we see redemption's effects. Redemption's effects, we see the forgiveness. Look at verse seven, the forgiveness. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You'll notice that redemption is the cause. Forgiveness is the effect. Redemption's the cause, forgiveness is the effect. Redemption implies the forgiveness of our offenses. They're very tightly linked. It's like God's predestining us to election. God's predestination leads to our election in him. His redemption leads to our forgiveness. It's like the judge saying in the courtroom, uh, this prisoner in jail is now going to be set free, and then the jailer goes down the hallway and turns the key and unlocks the door and lets the prisoner walk free, the freedom that was already pronounced. We have forgiveness of our transgressions. So many people want to make it a a light thing. Well, I just made some mistakes. And in fact, it's not even my fault. It's someone else's fault. No, it was your fault. You and I decided high-handedly to unfaithfully and treacherously act against God. And we perpetrated injustice and unrighteousness and rebellion against God. That's what sin is. We deliberately took false steps. We deliberately did error in front of a holy God. We failed to reach the goal. We fell short. We fell to the side. And and our transgressions, our sins, are the actual and plenteous and numerous results and manifestations of our depravity, our sin nature. And in our sin, we violated God's righteousness, and the violator must be punished. God sacrificed Jesus providing payment for sins to set sinners free from sin's punishment. The effect was cancellation of sin's obligation. The result was permanent release from sin's power and penalty. This is why you can please God, believer. This is why you can please God. It's not because you got really good at being a Christian. The result of release from sin's bondage by the payment of Christ's sacrificial death. It's a rescue effort that God enacted not unlike taking his people from slavery in Egypt and restoring them after exile. Our our redemption was rescue from slavery to sin and forgiveness is extraordinarily costly. It costs Christ his blood. Bought with the price of the violent death of God's beloved. In Mark chapter two, Jesus told the paralytic lowered through the roof by his friends, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees took issue, they objected. 
And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus has authority to forgive sins because he is God. And, and, and if you are forgiven in Christ, it is not a temporary passing by of your sins where God will say, you know, wait till later and we'll deal with this. Like, like you, you know, your, your mom would tell you when you were a kid, wait till your father gets home. For now, you won't get the punishment, but wait till later. This is not what forgiveness is. This is not God changing his mind about it. This is not God finding something out about you after the fact that gets him to change his mind. Forgiveness is not a temporary passing of your sins where punishment is suspended for a little while. It is a permanent cancellation. It is a release from the punishment of sin paid for by Christ's sacrifice. It's eternal forgiveness by a costly payment. William Barclay said, forgiveness is a costly thing. Human forgiveness is costly. A child may go wrong. A parent may forgive, but it has brought tears. The price of a broken heart to pay. Divine forgiveness is costly. God is love, but God is holiness. Sin must have its punishment. God alone can pay the terrible price necessary before men can be forgiven. Forgiveness is never a case of saying, it's all right. It doesn't matter. Forgiveness is the most costly thing in the world. Do you believe it? Do you believe, believer, that you have been freed from the power and penalty of sin by the most costly means imaginable? Do you believe that? If so, then do not presume upon God's grace. Do not trample on Christ's blood. He forgives the repentant. He does not forgive high-handed sinners. He does not ignore his moral law. There's no loophole. You know, sinners are lying. Sinners are rationalizing. We do all of this. If you are high-handedly sinning against God right now and calling yourself a believer, there is no promise or proof that you will repent. You have no assurance from God that you will repent. Don't be like Balaam in 2 Peter 2.15 where he loved the gain from wrongdoing. He was rebuked for his transgression by a dumb donkey. In, in Revelation 2 it says he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of God. God is not lenient with sin because sin had to be punished. It had to be paid in order for the sinner to go free. The effect of this payment is cancellation or release from all the obligations caused by sin. Christ took the punishment for you. The sacrifice of Christ shows how costly and how God does not take sin lightly. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, said, when I think I am asking God to forgive me, I am often asking him to excuse me. There is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. If one was not really to blame, there is nothing to forgive. Forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. 
in Luke 7 was a woman who poured out expensive oil to anoint Jesus. The Pharisees, too righteous, too self-righteous, too proud to ask forgiveness, grumbled at her. And they grumbled at Jesus. And Jesus said, she was lavish in her adoration for me because she realizes how much she was forgiven. Those who don't realize how much they've been forgiven, they don't praise Jesus, they don't love others, they don't forgive other people. They argue, they complain, they hold grudges. You love much when you've been forgiven much. In Psalm 130, verses three and four, it says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. That's the heart of the repentant that loves what, what Jesus did. I think back in the Old Testament when Jacob wrestled with God and God changed his name, his identity, and he was telling him, no longer will I relate to you on the basis of your sin. No longer will I let your sin flavor my relationship with you, but I will now relate to you on the basis of my righteousness. That's what God does for the believer. When he pronounces you redeemed and forgiven, he will no longer relate to you on the basis of all your heinous crimes against him, but upon Christ's righteous sacrifice. Albert Martin said this, the one who forgives makes a solemn four-pronged promise. And by the way, when you say to someone, I forgive you, you're making this promise. First, I will not knowingly remember this thing against you. Second, I will not speak of this thing to any others. Third, I will not raise it with you again. Buried the sins in the deepest sea. And fourth, I will not allow it to be a barrier in the restoration of our relationship. Such beauty based on Christ's beautiful sacrifice. See, in the beloved, we have redemption, and and redemption affects forgiveness. And now, and the fourth thing we see, and it's at the beginning of verse eight, what drove it all, and by the way, newsflash, no surprise, it's a restatement, the grace. The grace. Would you look with me at the beginning of verse 8? End of verse 7, beginning of verse 8. According to the riches of his grace, and then verse 8, which he lavished upon us. We don't use the term lavish very often here, do we? Uh, What does it mean? You know, you think of lavish grace. You think of lavish love. What does that mean? It means to superabound in quantity and quality. Think of the, the best you know, buffet you've ever seen, just lavishly poured out, heaped in excess. It means to have in excess. It means to be excellent. It means to be more abundant. It means to have over and above. It means to exceed all expectations. He has lavished his grace upon us. What does that mean? Does that mean he just sprinkled some here or there or some kind of leaked out and got on us? What does that mean? It means that according to the standard of God's wealth of grace, We have been blessed in Christ. That God's grace was not haphazard. It was not accidental. He didn't just throw a little bit our way. 
It's not like taking a poor, starving beggar dressed in rags and making him into a rich, healthy, well-dressed man. There is an internal, it will, help, it will show on the outside, but there's an internal transformation that takes place where you are made acceptable to God. You're not like injected with grace so you could be made better. You're transformed and made different. It's far more drastic. God bestows grace on believers, literally visited us with grace, overwhelmed us with vast amounts of grace, all his grace, that he has given his gracious provision. It's something he gives. It's not subjective, it's objective, it's from God, and it transforms your life. In Luke 1, verse 28, God bestowed favor in choosing Mary as the mother of Jesus, and Mary was troubled, and and Gabriel, the angel, said, don't fear. Don't fear God's grace in choosing you. you. You didn't have it, but now you do. The emphasis is on God's choice, not Mary's acceptability. And, and Christian, you are acceptable to God, not because he, he threw some grace your way, but because God bestowed grace on you, and it was the riches of his grace. You got all of the grace, not just a little bit. He showered you with grace. Some of you are like, oh, but I probably just got a little bit. You got all of it. In all wisdom and insight, it was according to his infinite wisdom and knowledge. It was according to the wealth of his grace. He lavished it upon us, not in little bits. It was the supreme cost of Christ's sacrifice for sinners. God's redemption, God's forgiveness, they were not out of, but according to the wealth of his grace. He didn't say, oh, I'm gonna pour a little bit out on you and a little bit out on you, and oh, I, I need to save up, make sure I don't run out. It was this abundant riches and wealth of unmerited favor. The wealth of God's grace redeems and forgives the sinner. And you have all of it. Grace is why redemption and forgiveness. The emphasis is on more than adequate. The more than adequate amount of God's grace. His riches and wealth. It was... The word was used in the Old Testament to refer to the riches of King Solomon that exceeded all the kings of the earth. Grace sufficient to cover all the sins of all, adequate for the worst of sinners. That's why Romans 5.20 says this, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Much more than you could ever dream, much more than you could ever think more grace, and God has already poured it out on his people. God has already poured it out on his people. It's like a lavish, abundant, overabundant, excellent feast where it's lavished, it's heaped up, it's overflowing, it's, it's abounding. God wasn't sprinkling it out like cheese or salt. He was pouring it out of the storehouse of his grace. I remember when I was in Irian Jaya, Indonesia in 1987. I was there for a month and I was doing some ministry there and I was, had spoken to this, this big field full of kids and youth and all these, uh, I guess, youth groups had come from all these uh, villages and they had walked miles to come together and it was like this big youth conference kind of thing and they kind of had a big contest and it was roasting the pigs and the yams and the greens and each group had their own, you know, pig they were roasting and all of this. And I just remember that when it got, 
when it was ready to serve, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I can't wait to eat this roast pig. But what happened was, was astounding to me. They came up to me and they started putting roast pigs in front of me and mounds of yams and mounds of greens. And it was just all out there on banana leaves. And it was like, I turned to my missionary friend, Jim Hively, and, and I had a, a little pocket knife. It was back in the days when you could still bring that on a plane. And, and I was like, ah, this is too much. This is too much. Way more than I need. I mean, we were, you, you, it was just crazy. It was so much. God is overwhelmingly gracious, and he took the initiative to show it to us, not haphazardly, not quickly pulled together like, you know, a, a last-minute birthday surprise party. He purposely designed a plan that matches up with his nature to be lavishly gracious to his people. And it was the ultimate rescue. It was the ultimate rescue effort. It was accomplished through the death of Jesus, proof of God's lavish grace. And God lavishes grace upon you, dispenses it in great measure, and desires you then to delight in him. See, in the beloved we have redemption, Redemption's effects is forgiveness, but what drove it all, no surprise, the grace. The grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, blessed in Christ the beloved, accepted, redemption through his blood, costly, bought from the slave market of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, and we've been forgiven abundantly in Christ, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his lavished grace. So I gotta tell you today, if you're a believer, hope of forgiveness is real. You don't have to be trudging along today thinking, I'm not really forgiven. Or you know what? I just don't know how much grace I really got. That forgiveness is real. That hope of forgiveness is real. If you're not a Christian today and you're thinking, I don't know if God can forgive me all the things I've done, think again. I mean, has life put the mileage on you? Are you feeling the pain? Are you weighed down, weary, troubled, hopeless, trapped in things you're doing, trapped in things done to you, trapped in... in, and things you did in the past? You feel condemned for your sins? You feel condemned by others? You feel the sharp criticism? You feel the pain of rejection and loss? You feel the, the loneliness of being misunderstood or labeled? Maybe on the other side of, of the fence, maybe you feel proud and self-justified. You think you're right and everybody else is wrong. You're angry at the world. Anybody who gets close enough to matter will get hurt answer is the same, you feel unforgiven. Where do you turn? Turn from sin and pain and judgment and condemnation and run to Jesus. Run to Jesus who took all the sin and pain and judgment and condemnation at the cross. Turn to Jesus. New life and forgiveness in Jesus because he purchased his people from the slave market of sin to be slaves to sin no more. Peter said this on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up. You need to know that apart from Jesus, you're lost. You're burdened with sin, and God took your sin and shame and nailed it to the cross. In Christ, there is new life. It's not reimagined or redefined Christianity. This is biblical Christianity from the beginning of time. 
that you can be saved from God's wrath that was justly aimed at your sin by grace through faith in Christ alone. That all the answers are in the perfect word of God. That, that it tells you what to do. Peter said it, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of forgiveness of sins. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus said in John 8, to those who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, redemption, forgiveness, you will be free indeed. God doesn't bait and switch you. God doesn't change the rules. God doesn't sugarcoat it. God tells you straight up what the truth is, and you don't need cheap substitutes. You don't need you know, new age sub-Christian ideas with liberal slant of progressivism that coddles your heart and ignores the real issue, your heart. You don't need feel-good relativism. You don't need deceptively fuzzy redefinitions of, of confession and repentance and salvation. You need to confess your sins. What does that mean? It means you admit that you're sinful. You admit that you're lost without Jesus. You confess your sins and you keep confessing your sins until Jesus comes back or you die, whichever comes first. Christians, admit your sins in need of Christ. Repent. What does that mean? It means you think differently about God and sin and that you, you hate what you once loved, your sin, and you love what you once hated, Jesus. You change your mind. What did David say in, in Psalm 32? When I was silent about my sins, my body wasted away. What do you say in Psalm 51? My sin is ever before me. Don't take your spirit from me. You know, the real Christian, the worst thought is to, be, is to not be right with God. So the, 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 the Christian repents, confesses their sins and repents. The true believer can't stand the prospect of not being right with God. They need reassurance. We, we need to admit our sin is bad, damningly reprehensible, and Jesus is good, delightfully righteous. He is the way and the truth and the life. There is no other way to be right with God than through Jesus. And you, you just realize that and you go, I want to follow him. I want to worship him. I want to trust him. I want to obey him with his people, with his people, with all their flaws and with all mine. Knowing that all who come to Christ are freely forgiven by a God greater than all their sin because Jesus substituted himself in our place at the cross and took the punishment our sins deserved and satisfied the holy wrath of the only sovereign God and offers new life to all who come to him. God doesn't wink at your sin. He sent Jesus to die for your sin. He doesn't just let it go and say it's not a big deal. He pays the cost, carries it all, so you receive forgiveness freely at God's expense. The cost was immeasurable. Precious blood. First Peter 1 says, conduct yourselves. As believers, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, your life right now, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God that you can have confidence in Jesus today. That you don't have to leave this, this place with fear in your heart. Jesus is coming to gather his people 
from, and from when he comes, from that moment on, we will always be with him. But until then, he is with his adopted and forgiven and redeemed family, forever secure in him. And I just know this, that when you know the depth of your sin and you know the heights of God's forgiveness for you, you'll never be afraid of anything. You'll keep on praising God. You'll be in awe of forgiveness. You'll say, wow, who am I to be giving gifts back to God from his own hand? And you won't be casual about forgiveness and you won't be casual about your sin. You'll realize that forgiveness is costly so you need to live carefully. You'll keep praising God, but you know what else you'll do? You'll keep giving the gospel to people in need of God's grace. We have devast the devastating earthquakes in Turkey recently, just unimaginable death tolls. It just blows your mind, and I keep thinking to myself, with such loss of life, how many knew Jesus? It tells us the urgency, the urgency to go with the gospel of the grace of God in Christ that you can be redeemed and forgiven. Think about it with me. Throughout history, God was preparing the world for Christ to come. Before he came, people were always looking for who is the deliverer. Is it this one? Is it that one? One after another, it was not the one. But God knew all along that in the fullness of the time, he would send forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem us. Redeem all those under sin. So we keep praising God. Christians keep praising God. Christians keep preaching the gospel, giving the gospel. But you know what else Christians do? They keep forgiving other people as they've been forgiven in Christ. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. Are you forgiven today? Are you forgiven today? Do you know if you're forgiven today? And have you forgiven all who have sinned against you? I don't think we realize how much unforgiveness messes up our life. It messes up our sleep and our work and our appetite and our service and our relationships. But when you are forgiven, joy and peace are present. When you don't forgive, joy and peace flee. When you do forgive, joy and peace return. When you're overcome by the magnanimous grace of God, you readily forgive. You find it costly, but surprisingly easy. Think about Paul, he had evil things done to him, he did evil. He was in need of forgiveness, he needed to forgive. The forgiven choose to forgive. Costly, joyful act. In that act, you'll lose your pride, your vendettas, your scorekeeping, your being right, and you will worship Jesus for his lavish grace. You can forgive your spouse and your kids and your friends and everyone. You count the cost, cast it in the deep depths of the sea with no fear, swim in the oceans of God's mercy, bask in the beauty of Jesus, and do for others what Jesus did for you. You never bring it up again. You tell no one else. You no longer let it flavor your relationship or your thoughts. You say, it is finished. I'm gonna move on and, and truly be free and forgiven in Christ. As Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Back to Iri and Jaya, Indonesia, when I was there and I had that big heaping mound of food in front of me, my friend Jim Hively told me, he said, that's not for you to consume. It's for you to distribute. The, the favored guest has it piled up in front of them for them, lavishly poured out for them to share. Freely you have received, freely give. Uh, just remember this, there's no spoiled brats in God's house. There are the repentant who live confidently and give the gospel and forgive others as they have been forgiven. 
And Lord, we thank you and praise you that you free and forgive your people by your grace in Christ. Wow, what a, what a life-changing truth. May we, may we live it today, Lord, in your strength, for your glory, that we would not throw away our confidence, which has great reward, but we keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able as we close?
So before we go, just a few announcements. Uh, I want you to ask you to keep praying for people that we're sending out coming up. Uh, Marissa Clark to Japan in March, and Ellie and Matt and Hannah Radmilovich to Japan in Ju June and July. And then coming up quickly, uh, Turkey Disaster Relief Team of Alan Weisenberger and Dan Martin and Paul Shibley that will be uh, leaving March 6th and 7th, I believe. And uh, we have a men's quarterly event coming up on March 18th. There's info about that. And then a special treat next Sunday. We'll have two of our Africa ministry partners um, coming in, Newton Chilangulo and Sandala Mwanje. Uh, there's more about that uh, that you can uh, look forward to. And we'll have lunch afterwards, too. And both men will be preaching and teaching in Bible classes. And they'll share after lunch uh, about their ministries as well. So let's close with Psalm 107, uh, verses 1 to 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And Lord, we praise you for your steadfast love. Thank you that it endures forever. Thank you for redemption and forgiveness in Christ. May we serve your purposes today and every day you grant us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign.